you would stand with me, we're going to look at the passage of Scripture, Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, from which Pastor Wayne is going to preach in just a moment. <clears throat> in him also you were circumcised with, with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as um, Pastor Wayne comes just now to speak and preach and teach from this passage, I pray that you would use him in a mighty way this morning, Father. We ask that you would open each of our hearts, our ears, our eyes and our minds to hear your word proclaimed so that we might be challenged, we might be convicted, and we might be encouraged. For these things we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want you to know it's good to be back. I finished a very enjoyable week with my family watching one of my grandsons, Hunter, play in the 10-year-old Cal Ripken World Series. And uh, they beat teams from Massachusetts to Hawaii to Jacksonville, Florida, and they were one of the last of um, five teams standing before losing to Alabama three to two. But they're only 10, so as a team, they will rise and fight again. And uh, we're now gonna transition into another uh, into another sport, but it was it's just so good to be home. I, I worshiped with you online last week and, and greatly enjoyed Tim, and um, I, I did notice, though, that, that you gave him a standing ovation at the end, and, and uh, one of the guys pointed out, you've never done that for me in all the years I've been here, and so I had better get home quickly if I want to keep my job. So I hustled back, and I want you to know I'm glad to be here. So open your Bibles this morning to Colossians 2. And I trust that as you have read through your Bible, one of the things that you have noticed is how the Lord, through the nation of Israel, and this is you, you see this through, throughout all of the Old Testament, he, he gives them physical signs with spiritual significance. As a matter of fact, when he calls Abraham out from the foolish man-made gods of his father, this is following the divine judgment there at the Tower of Babel there in Genesis 12, he makes him a promise. He says, you know, Abraham, and you got to remember, Abraham has no children. Abraham's wife is old. She is barren. And he makes him a promise. He says, I'm going to make you a blessing in you, in you, Abraham. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. Wow. So through Abraham's descendants, the Lord will provide his word, he's going to give them that at Mount Sinai. And he's going to provide the word made flesh. As the Lord, through the nation that is created from Abraham's seed, through them he's going to prepare the way for the incarnate arrival of Christ. Now as a sign of the promise that he gives to Abraham, 
the sign of that covenant. The Lord tells him, every male in your house, because he's going to give him a number of nations that are going to come forth from Abraham. But this one special nation that is going to come from Isaac and is going to, he's going to choose Jacob over Esau before either are born. And it's through that nation Judah will come and they'll be known as the Jews. And so you're going to see these people being created by the Lord for a purpose. And as a sign that he's going to keep this promise, he says, I want them circumcised. Why? Well, circumcision means to cut away. I'm going to give you this physical sign that's got spiritual significance. You're going to, the means by which I have created, the Lord is talking to Abraham, the means by which I have created man to procreate on the eighth day. Remember, the number seven is the number of completeness because the Lord created in six days and rested on the seventh. On the eighth day, the sign of something new, the descendants of Abraham, at least the ones through Isaac and Jacob and, and so forth, are going to be set aside from apart from all the other nations of the earth. They're going to be known as Gentiles. All these other nations are Gentiles. And they're going to have this physical sign as a reminder of the promise the Lord made them, the sign of circumcision. Now, why does he do this? Why? What is the purpose of this? Well, he's, he's preparing the world for the, new, for the new one who is going to come and bring a new creation by cutting away cutting away the sin that resides in the human heart that's there naturally because of Adam. So this physical sign of circumcision, it's not meant to save anyone. It's just a sign of the covenant the Lord makes with Abraham that he will save men from every tongue, tribe, and nation on earth. We are all brought forth from the seed of Adam. When he falls in the garden, that, that rebellious attitude is passed on to all who come after him. And so when you read through the Gospels, what do you see? As you're reading through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, what do you see? You see Christ. What's he doing? He's physically healing men of every ailment that sin has introduced to the human race. There in Matthew, he heals lepers. Matthew 9, after the demon is cast out, what happens? The mute speaks. He'll touch the blind man's eyes and they will immediately see. He will say to the, the man with the withered hand there at the, tabern at the uh, tabernacle, or actually he was at the synagogue. He was at the synagogue. He'll say, stretch forth that withered hand and it is healed immediately, fully, completely. He is whole again. Even the woman who has the issue of blood, nobody could help her. And she just reaches out and touches the garment the tassels there known as zitzits that are hanging from his robe. And the minute that she touches him, she's healed. She's made whole. Why do you see that throughout the Gospels? Remember Luke 5 where they, they, they cut a hole in the top of this roof and they lower this paralyzed man down into his presence and he's immediately made whole. We've just finished going through the Gospel of John and there in chapter 5 he tells the man, pick up your bed and walk and immediately he's made whole. 
You see that throughout all of the Gospels. As a matter of fact, if you combine them just over a one-month period, 30 days, 30 days, 53 healings are recorded where they are made whole of every disease known to man, everything that, that cripples man because of his sin. And John says, listen, we didn't even, we didn't even record the bulk of what he did. There are so many other miracles that Christ did that, that if we had tried to record them, the, the libraries of the world wouldn't have held them. Why? Why is this recorded so many times? They were made whole. Well, the, the dominant term used for healings is the Greek word from which we get the word hygiene. It, it means to be made clean, healthy. Now, what's that got to do with Colossians 2? Everything has everything to do with Colossians 2. Look down in your Bibles this morning and you'll notice, I want you to see if you can find what is the common thread in verse 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, and 15. What is it that you see being repeated over and over and over and over and over again and again? What is it? In Him. In Him. In Him. In Christ. You have been made plerao, whole and complete. That's why Paul said to the Corinthian church that you're new creations. You are new creations. The sign the Lord gave Abraham and his descendants, the Israelites, the cutting away of flesh where human life comes from, it's just a physical sign that has spiritual significance in that through Israel, the one who cuts away the sinful nature that dwells within men's hearts is coming. He's coming. He's coming. Here's the sign that I will keep my promise. He's coming. And he's going to bring forth new creations as men who are dead in their sins are going to be made alive. They're going to be whole. Restoring to every man from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Now, this doesn't mean every man on earth, but it means from all of the Gentile nations on earth. This gospel is for all men everywhere. The gospel will go forth, and by the grace of God, through faith in Christ, men will be made whole. So to this church at Colossae, you've got people who are coming to the church, as we've seen in past weeks, are bringing their philosophies with them. They're mingling these philosophies with sacramental ceremonies, saying that you not only need to believe the secret messages from the elemental spirits, but you Gentiles, you Gentiles, and most of them were Gentiles, other than the Judaizers that had come into the church, most of them were Gentiles. And they're telling them, you need to be physically circumcised because the Bible says so right here. You can read it right here in the Old Testament. Now this is what you call Jesus. It's where you, you take a scripture out of its context and you make it say what you want it to say. That's not exegesis. Exegesis means exit. You take out of the scripture what it's meant to say. This is eisegesis. And so by ignoring the Lord's purpose for circumcision, they're having these people miss the complete significance for circumcision. As the incarnate Christ physically healed man of every ailment, including raising them from the dead, he spiritually heals men from every tongue, tribe, and nation on earth. He cuts away 
the sinful nature they inherited from Adam, making them plerao, whole, complete. Now, that's why John writes in his third epistle, he says, look, I pray for you. I pray that you may be in good health. I pray that you are physically as healthy as your soul is. Now, what does he mean by that? He's saying, Christ has made you whole in your soul. And boy, if your physical body was as, as, as well off, was as healthy as what the Lord has made you spiritually, then you would really be in good shape. Now, we've got a similar situation today. We have um, in pulpits all across this country and around the world for that matter, We've got folks, even though Christ said at the cross, it is finished, they, they're not preaching it is finished. But with their philosophies and their religion, they bring in all kinds of physical requirements for salvation. Matter of fact, there's a, there's a whole segment of people out there who are saying that unless you worship on Saturday, you're not going to go to heaven. There's another group of people out there that will tell you that, that you're not going to heaven unless you've been uh, baptized in water. There's another group of people out there that tell you you're not going to heaven unless you're using the right English translation like the King James Version. There are others out there that will tell you unless you're a part of their specific church or their denomination or whatever, you're, you're lacking. You are lacking. All these physical requirements are being put on people instead of celebrating the fact that they are made whole in Christ by the grace of God through their faith in him. And so these false Christians were taking these Old Testament rituals and they were mixing them with pagan concepts and claiming, as we will see later, we're not get into it today, but that you had to observe diet codes and festivals and Sabbaths and the like. That's why Paul said back in verse 8, look, see to it, blepo, remember that? You see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. And now he's going to show you how you are complete in Christ. Circumcision you unifies us with Christ. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. What in the world does that mean? Well, again, go back to the Old Testament. And you realize that when a boy was born, an Israelite, on the eighth day, the beginning of a new week, he was circumcised. That's a sign the Lord gave to the descendants of Abraham that reminded them of his promise. They take that male body through which life is reproduced and through which the spiritual DNA of Adam is passed on, that sinful nature is passed on to all men, whether they are male or female. And that physical sign of cutting away had a spiritual significance, reminding them of the promise the Lord would make. That through Abraham, in other words, Christ's incarnate arrival is going to come through the descendant. He's going to give you a genealogical roadmap through that Old Testament right up to Bethlehem. And there is one who is coming from the lineage of Abraham who will defeat sin, Satan, and death. And you know what? Abraham believed God even though he was childless. He believed God even though Sarah was old. She was 75 years old. And it didn't even happen immediately. 
And so, was Abraham declared righteous because he was circumcised, or was he declared righteous because of his faith? Well, Paul explains that in Romans 4. Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Do you know what he's talking about there? Abraham trusted the word of the Lord in Genesis 12, but he's not circumcised until Genesis 15. So, well, how long was that? 14 years? 14 years. So circumcision was never the means for his redemption. It was simply a sign of how the Lord would redeem him. How was Abraham or anyone else in the Old Testament? How, were, how was anybody back before the cross, how were they reconciled to the Lord? Do you know? How were people saved before Christ died on the cross? The same way we're saved after Christ died on the cross. By the grace of God, through faith in the one he would send. We have, by the grace of God, faith in the one he has sent. And so it's not through physical signs, it's by the grace of God through faith in the one he sent to accomplish our redemption that we are complete. So this whole nonsense about needing to be circumcised physically is ridiculous. The purpose for circumcision given to Abraham and his descendants is fulfilled in Christ. You're not saved by the cutting away of flesh with human hands. You are saved by the cutting away of your sinful nature accomplished in Christ. Now, he's not going to save you from the presence of sin because you are left here to take the gospel to sinners. He is going to save you from the reign of sin. Sin will no longer reign over you even though it will remain around you. You're still going to face temptation. You're still going to have to uh, do spiritual warfare. You're still going to have to discipline yourself. Buffet your body daily, as Paul said. The circumcision, the cutting away of the flesh that identified man with Adam, that was a sign of Israel. That was a sign to Israel of the promise the Lord made to send one who would remove that sinful nature that we received from Adam that makes us children of wrath. So now what is the new sign going to be? Well, he tells you in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, when we are born again, the ordinance of baptism represents our identification with Christ. We're identifying as he died to the just wrath of God's holy character to atone for our sins. We identify with him. By being in him, we identify with his death. And he proved it by his resurrection from the grave. So we identify with him by being raised to walk in newness of life. Who we once were in our old nature was buried in Christ. That's what Romans 6 is talking about. Just as he rose from the grave, giving proof of his defeat of sin, Satan, and death, we too are raised with him, realizing what was true of him is now true of us because we're in him. So we've died to sin, right? We've been raised to walk in a newness of life. This is why the physical act of baptism in water is the initial act of our faith. 
You know, I'm often asked, you know, do I have to be baptized in water to be saved? And my answer is always the same. It's straight from Scripture. Yes and no. That ought to clear it up. My point is, yes, you have to be baptized. You have to be. You have to be baptized in Christ. Isn't that what Christ told Nicodemus? He, he said, look, you, you don't want to approach a holy God dressed in your sins. You must be, and the word baptizo means immersed in him. Well, when I'm sprinkled or, or they, they, they poured water over me or I was dipped in, in water, did, did, did that save me? Well, of course not. Of course not. Water baptism is a physical sign just as circumcision was a physical sign. Physical cir circumcision didn't save anyone, and neither does water baptism. Well, now, those that are from this area that are, are, uh, are kind of ingrained in the restoration movement that, uh, that kind of uh, gave birth over to Cane Ridge and so forth are going to say, well, wait a minute now. Uh, why was it on the day of Pentecost when the church began? I mean, what, what do you see? You see 3,000 water baptisms on the day of Pentecost, right? Why did Peter say in Acts 2.38, you must repent and be baptized, huh? If you don't have to be water baptized to be saved. Why, don't, why, does, it, why does it say that? Well, if we're saved in Christ, why do I need to be immersed in water? That's the question. Water baptism is a sign of our identification with Christ. It's a public profession of what we claim has taken place within our hearts. That's why it's the initial testimony of those saved by the grace of God through the means the Lord has provided through Christ's atoning death at the cross. So when Peter says to those, you've got to remember, it's by the grace of God that these people have come to faith. And so when they come to him and they are pricked in their heart, I mean, they're cut to the core. And they ask, what must we do now? What's the obvious thing? If you're born again by the grace of God through faith in Christ, what are you going to do? You're going to repent of your sin. You're not going to continue in your sin that grace may abound, are you? God forbid, Paul said in Romans 6. Of course not. You're going to repent. And so then why does he say, than to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Well, because his name represents the authority by which our sins are remitted. It's by his authority that we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So water baptism is an identifying sign. It's a public profession of our faith. It's the initial testimony that we have that we are in Christ. So we need to be baptized in water, though it does not save us. Say, why is that? I mean, because we all have seen people who were sprinkled. We've all known people who've had water poured over them. We've all known people who were dunked in water, who today have no association with Christ whatsoever. So that tells you something, doesn't it? You don't put your faith in a physical sign. You don't say, well, I know I'm saved because I remember back when I got baptized. You may have just got dipped in water. It's all that happened to you. I mean, it would be like an Old Testament Pharisee putting his faith in circumcision, you know. He doesn't see it as a sign for, for which the Lord gave him. 
of the redemption that is to come? What if he sees circumcision as a means for saving him? That would be foolishness. It was a physical sign reminding the Israelites the Lord would keep his promise to Abraham that he would save men from every tongue, tribe, and nation on earth. So should we be baptized in water if there's no salvific value to it? Well, yeah. Why? I mean, if there's no salvific value to it, what's the purpose? It represents our identity with Christ. So if you haven't done that, why have you not done that? Why? I mean, to refuse is, is like an Israelite in the Old Testament saying, I reject the sign of circumcision. I, I want no part of obeying the God who calls, the God who saves, the God who glorifies himself through my life. I want no part of that. Surely you're not among those who'd say that baptism in water might be good for those who want to honor the Lord in obedience, but that's not me. That's not me. I, I, I don't want to publicly identify with Christ. I'll decide for myself what I will and will not do. You don't have that kind of rebellious attitude, do you? Surely you're not refusing to identify with Christ if indeed you've been saved in Christ. See, water baptism is not a work that merits the grace of God. It is a sign, a physical, public sign that proclaims the grace of God. So Paul now makes this emphatic statement that salvation is a divine act of our Lord. It's not something that man needs to supplement. He says, and you, he's talking to Christians here, and you who were, that's past tense, who were dead in your trespasses, another word for sin, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, you who were living according to the sinful rebelliousness that you inherited from Adam, you, God made alive. God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Now, you know, in the Old Testament, uncircumcised referred to the enemies of the Lord, like the Philistines. David said of Goliath, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Being dead in our trespasses, in our sin, we have as much ability by means of human effort to get from where we are today to heaven on our own as Lazarus has of getting from the grave back to his home without the Lord's intervention. How is that possible? It's not. It's not. We were judicially dead, justly condemned, morally incapable of making ourselves right with the Holy God. That's the truth. We were like, like a Charles Manson, <laughs> sweeping the floors, cleaning the bars, making his bed, thinking if, if, if I'm a model prisoner, I can remove my guilt and eliminate my condemnation. That's not true, Charlie. You couldn't do it. It doesn't matter how good a prisoner you are. Your guilt is fixed. The blood of Sharon Tate and the LaBiancas cries out against you. Your guilt cannot be removed by your behavior in prison. And that's true of all of us. 
We might be better sinners than other people. We might not be as bad as we could be. We might not be as bad as he is or they are. But we're still judicially guilty. We're still morally dead. That was true of us. I mean, some of us were better Philistines than others. But judicially and morally, I mean, we couldn't do anything to remove our condemnation. See, once again, this is the significance between Christianity and religion. Christianity recognizes our true condition. Christianity recognizes the fact that we are spiritually dead. I mean, the Lord said to Adam there in the garden, You eat of this tree and you shall surely die. And then the lie came, you shall surely not die. And Adam believed the lie over the truth. And what happened to him? He immediately, spiritually died right there in his relationship with the Lord. And as a result, he later physically died. And he passed it on to everyone that came forth from him and Eve. Dead men don't make good decisions. So how, Lord, how in the world are you going to make us alive in Christ? How are you going to do that? Well, I'll tell you my testimony. Here's how he did it for me. In my case, he taught my heart to fear as a teenager. I was in high school. I grew up with these guys that I was running with. And between my junior and senior year of high school, he put me in the presence of the gospel through a girl who led me to church. And then he opened my heart. Not only that, he opened my ears. And you know what that did? It made trouble in my soul. And I had to wrestle with myself. Repenting of how I had lived in rebellion to him. And you know what he did? He created in me by his grace a faith that has endured and will endure to the grave. Because he gave me a new heart. He declared me righteous, and he put my name in the Lamb's book of life, and he sealed me there for eternity, and he placed within me the Holy Spirit, and one day he's going to raise my carcass from the grave and reunite it with my spirit. And what in all of that did I do? Throughout that whole process, what did I do? I sinned. I came to him as a sinner. That's who I am. That's who I was. Charlie Spurgeon said he was reflecting one day on what it means to be a Christian. And he says, well, it, I guess it means that I'm, I'm reconciled with the Father through faith in Christ. And he got to thinking, but why? why? Why did you need to be reconciled? He thought, well, because I was a sinner. How'd you know that, Charlie? How did you know you were a sinner? I mean, lots of people think that they're good people, Right? How did you know you were a sinner? Well, he revealed it to me in his word. I, I, I was reading his word and I saw my reflection against his holiness and he showed me the justice I deserved. And then he, he opened my heart to that truth. He opened my heart to that truth. It was by his grace, by his grace, he loved me. Why did he love you, Charlie? He said, I don't know. I don't know. I gave him no reason to. See, the American gospel 
teaches a grace that's not very amazing. It's a grace that's, that needs to cooperate, that needs to, to have this cooperative effort of men to do their best to impress a holy God so that he will choose them, right? They're going to do their best through their religion in hopes that God will choose them. You know, that gospel is a lot easier for Americans to accept. They like that gospel. They really like it because they can, they can do something to make themselves righteous. The only problem with that gospel is it's not the truth. It's not. Dead men don't seek after God. For a holy God to quicken a child of wrath who's spiritually dead requires amazing grace. And how does he do it? Well, look at verse 14. By canceling the record of death that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Erkin, set aside. You know what that has to do with? A condemned person that is put aside without vengeance being taken against them. Now that raises a question, at least in my mind. How, Lord? How can you do that? How can you set aside the fact that I am a sinner without violating your holy character? And the answer is, he can't. He can't. The holiness of his character demands justice. Now you've got to remember, in those days, if you took bankruptcy, you couldn't pay your bills, they wrote your name on a sign and they nailed it up at the city gate, out in the city square, so everybody could see you don't pay your bills. Don't do any business with this guy. He's not reliable. He's not trustworthy. Your guilt would cry out against you. It was right there for the whole world to see. Once the debt, though, was paid, they would go around, and whoever had paid their debt in full, they marked their name out with a chi. You know what a chi is? A chi is the Greek letter that looks a lot like an X. That's what Paul is explaining. Our debt was crying out against us. His holy character demands justice. Being holy, he has no choice. And we have no ability to pay. I mean, th this is why natural man does not like to go to a church where the holiness of God is taught. They don't like that. Give me something that will make me feel good about myself. Give me, give me seven steps to be a better father or something. Tell me what a good person I am. I don't want to hear the truth about a holy God. I don't want to hear the truth about me as a sinner. The problem is, the gospel, the true gospel, doesn't make a lot of sense if you never understand the truth about God. It makes no sense if you don't understand the truth about yourself. See, once you understand who God really is and you learn the truth about who you really are, I mean, the gospel is the most precious thing on earth. Why? Because you realize the Lord took the debt that cries out against us and he doesn't wink at it. 
He deals with it. He deals with it. He crosses it out by nailing it to the cross. In the one who as a man without sin, in the one who is also the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, right? Remember that? Satisfied the wrath that our sin, that his holy character demanded of our sin. He satisfied it, made the payment in full. And so we take that X and we cross out our debt. Our forgiveness isn't because the Lord somehow compromised his character and then decided to be just with everybody else. No, 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 no. That violates the essence of his being. He can't do that. He dealt with our sin. He dealt with it. And so that's why it's such nonsense to say you've got to now have these extra uh, messages coming from these angels, these elemental spirits. You, you've got to reject these angels over here in order to be saved. You, you've got to, to now be circumcised, you Gentiles. You've got to do these things. This is why he goes on and says in verse 15, look, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. There it is again, in him. He didn't just deal with the fruit of our rebellion, he dealt with the root of it. So these Gnostics, or at least this was Gnosticism that was beginning to bloom in the first century, saying you need to listen to these good angels and revile the wicked angels and all this. Paul says this is a bunch of nonsense. The Lord disarmed the rulers and authorities, all of them, put them to open shame. Now this word disarmed is the Greek word to strip. That's what you did when you conquered someone. You stripped them. You took their weapons. You tied their weapons to, their, to, their, uh, to your chariot. And you tied them to your chariot. And you humiliated them before the multitudes. Remember back in 2 Samuel when the Ammonite king dies? I don't remember his name. But, but anyway, David had gotten along well with him. And he sent um, this delegation up there. He sent a, a, some representatives uh, from Israel up to say thank you to the sons of this, this king for their daddy being so cooperative with him. And you know what? That's not the way his sons took it. His sons thought that David was sending this delegation up there to spy on them, to see what it was going to be like in their land now that their father had died. And so they take these, what they believe to be spies, the goodwill ambassadors, and they cut off their beard, which was a way of humiliating them. And they cut off their tunic, which was another way of humiliating. And then they put them out of the city and sent them home, sheared in disgrace. Well, here they come back. Their beards are gone. Their tunics are all cut off. And they tell David what happened. And he gets so angry, so angry by that act of humiliation that he goes to war with the Ammonites and destroys them. Verse 15. Paul says the Lord took the rulers and authorities. All of this celestial stuff you're talking about up there. And stripped them. Humiliated them. And will destroy them. So those who say your faith in Christ. Those who say your faith in his atoning work is not enough. You've got to keep these ordinances. You've got to receive these messages from these angels. 
It's nonsense. The Lord has disarmed all rulers and authorities. He's put them to open shame by triumphing over all creation in Christ, who is Lord of lords and King of kings. Revelation 19. So here's the gospel. Here it is, in the simplest form. God's character has been appeased by the atoning death of Christ. The divine judgment that left us spiritually dead has been avenged in Christ. As a result, we have been made alive in Christ. And our hearts have been circumcised. Our old nature has been cut away because we are in Christ. We're not out of the presence of sin, but we are out of the dominance of sin. Sin remains, but it does not reign. We are new creations in Christ. So the good news is our redemption is complete in Christ. Therefore, verse 16, let no one pass judgment on you, which we will see the significance of next week. We don't need religion, folks. We don't need sacerdotalism. We don't need somebody to, to administer God's grace to us. We don't need sacramentalism, whereby God's grace is conferred on us through the sacraments. We don't need modern-day messages from angels or from anybody else for that matter. Everything we need to be fully justified before the Lord, to be fully sanctified here on earth, and to be fully glorified for all eternity has been granted to us in Christ. The good news of the gospel is complete. It's complete. All whom the Lord justifies, he sanctifies. And all whom he sanctifies, he glorifies. It's complete. Now, if you have any questions about that, you can go to the Connect table. There's somebody there to help you, or you can come see me. I'll be glad to meet with you. I'll be here all this week. Matter of fact, I hope never to leave town again because uh, I like sleeping in my bed. And so I'll be here to help you if you have any questions or you can see any one of our elders or member of our staff. Um, matter of fact, any of our members are glad to, to help any of you if you have any questions whatsoever if you're visiting. Why don't you stand with me as we pray together? Lord, we just want to end this service by thanking you for what you did for us when we were spiritually dead in our sin. Thank you, Lord, for making us alive in Christ. Thank you, Lord, for canceling our debt by covering our sin-filled lives in Christ. Thank you, Lord, for forgiving us by canceling the guilt we earned through nailing it to the cross in Christ. Thank you, Lord, for setting us free from the power of sin that we might glorify you through the new life that you've given us in Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.